0: Let's open our Bibles to First Corinthians, and we're going to just continue teaching through the book of First Corinthians and, um. Uh, we may take a detour every so often, but there's so much in this book that is relevant for today, what the church is going through today, and, and, and things that are taking place, issues that, that the church as a whole are dealing with, that our culture is dealing with. And as people, as believers uh, in the body of Christ, we really need to understand how Scripture addresses and deals with uh, these very, very important issues. So now, we're beginning 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. Last week, I kind of did an, uh, uh, laid some groundwork and, and talked about some larger themes. And I just want to remind you, we talked about condemnation versus conviction. So as we go through the Word of God, and the Word of God begins to deal with specific issues, a lot of times, the Word of God is dealing with issues that we've dealt with, things in our past. And anytime that happens, uh, there's always an opportunity for the enemy. You know, the, the, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And there's a reason why the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. You know why? Because that's what he does. He accuses the brethren. And so he, he is constantly bringing accusation against us. Do you know where I believe his Greatest audience for accusation is found. It's not found before the throne of God. His greatest audience for accusation is found in us, in our own hearts, in our own minds. And so the enemy comes to us, and he reminds us of our past failures, of our past sin, of things that have happened in our life, and he brings accusation against us to condemn us, ultimately that condemnation is designed to destroy our faith, to wreck our faith and bring us to a point of hopelessness in believing that I'm beyond God's reach, that my life is such a mess, I've made such a mess of my life that there's no way it can be redeemed. So as we teach through Scripture and we deal with the issues, the very real sin that existed in the Corinthian church, it's the same sin that exists in the church today. It's the same sin because human nature doesn't change. The same human nature that caused incest and and all kinds of perversion that Paul deals with in the Scripture, that same human nature that caused that then is the same human nature we deal with today. And but by the grace of God, any of us could be trapped in the depths of some sin or perversion. The reality is we were all born into, we were all trapped in sin and death. It doesn't matter how perverted it is. So this is kind of the, this is kind of the lie the enemy puts on us today. So we see these battles in our culture. Let's take homosexuality, for instance. Many people are repulsed by homosexuality. But yet, this guy over here, this businessman, he goes to the the stripper club every day for lunch because he's convinced himself, he's not really going there to look at the women, he's going there because he gets a really good deal on the ribeye steak. So he justifies his sinfulness. Or, you know, he flirts with the Secretary, he flirts with the girl in the office and just kind of has this game going on. But it's really not sin. But in his heart and his mind, he's fantasizing about what it would be like to have an affair with her. But it's really not sin. And we see what's happened is we've made certain sins socially acceptable, personally acceptable. Oh, we know it's not right, but you know, it's not. But now, I'm not a homosexual. I'd never do that. I'd never sink to the depths of that kind of sin. That's repulsive. But yet, this other sin in my life is not repulsive. Well, I've got news. It's repulsive to God. It is. It's repulsive to God. The adultery of the businessman, the fornication of the college student or the high school student or the single man or the single woman, the fornication, the sexual immorality is just as repulsive to God, whether it's gay or straight, it doesn't matter. It's repulsive to God. Now, the very fact that I say that may may create an opportunity for the enemy to come and bring condemnation to you because perhaps you have participated in certain sinful behaviors and sinful lifestyles. Maybe even you still struggle today with certain behaviors and certain issues that you know are sinful, and you can't seem to get past those things. And so it's an opportunity for the enemy to come and bring condemnation to you. What I want you to understand is that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is not to bring condemnation to you. The Holy Spirit is present to convict you because, remember, condemnation leads us to death, but conviction leads us to life. God convicts us of certain things because he wants to lead us to life. He wants to lead us away from death and to life. Condemnation wants to lead us away from life and to death. So don't confuse the two. You may be feeling conviction. Let conviction do its work. Let the Spirit of God do its work. But The point of conviction is never for you to be condemned. It's never to make you hopeless. It's never to make you think that I'm beyond God's love and God's Redemption, because no one is beyond God's love and beyond God's redemption. God is able to save to the uttermost. Amen. So let's read these 13 verses. Not very, not very long. Let's read them together. First Corinthians chapter 5. Just read along with me in your Bible. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. Your Bible may say fornication among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You don't hear that preached much today from pulpits. That doesn't sell very many books, that doesn't get many tweet followers. Or Facebook shares, right? But it's the word of the Lord. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would not need to go out. Since then, excuse me, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? The answer to that rhetorical question is I don't have anything to do with judging those who are outside. Here's another rhetorical question Do you not judge those who are inside? And the answer is yes. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Thirteen verses, pretty intense dealing with some really uncomfortable issues in terms of how we handle things in the church. So I want you to think about this. Sinful lifestyles among those who profess to be disciples of Jesus. Do you profess to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, here's something that we need to understand. If you profess to be saved, if you say, I trust in Jesus as my Savior there is something understood that's just inherently implied that if you make that profession of faith in Christ, it's understood that you are making a profession that you are a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And what you're professing is, my life is going to be like the one I'm following because that's what disciples did. They emulated the life of the one they were following. So, our life as followers of Jesus should look more like Jesus than the world, right? If we profess to be followers of Jesus, then our life needs to look more like Jesus than it will look like the world. And so, when those who profess to be disciples of Jesus practice sinful lifestyles, those lifestyles and the practice of that sin should not create in the church an inflated ego or a boasting in self-righteousness. This is what was happening in the Corinthian church. So, for instance, when we go to, look at verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. That word puffed up in the Greek means Literally, like, you've got an inflated ego. So it's, this is kind of the picture. Look at that dude. He is a pervert. He is disgusting. Whew, I'm so glad I'm not like that. I am just so righteous. I would never do anything like that. I'm too righteous for that. I'm too close to God for that. Do you see the puffed up, inflated ego there? Paul said, you've got a puffed up, inflated ego rather than mourning. You guys are bragging about how gifted your church is and how the Spirit is moving in your church, and you're all puffed up about that, but yet sin is rampant among you, and you rather, instead of being inflated in your ego and self-righteousness, you rather should be mourning, grieving, wailing in sorrow because of the sin that exists in the church. So sinful lifestyles among those who profess to be disciples of Jesus should not cause an attitude of of an inflated ego or self-righteousness or boasting. It should cause an attitude of mourning. Another thing those lifestyles should not do, the proliferation of sin in the church should not create an attitude of complacency or acceptance. So why do we see whole movements and whole denominations today calling good what the Bible calls evil, calling acceptable what the Bible calls unacceptable? Why do we have men of God, churches, movements, saying, well, you know, it's just the way the culture is. We've, We've come into the 21st century and the church needs to move out of the dark ages and into the 21st century. You know how we've come to that place? Because of the proliferation of sin in the church, undealt with, we've just decided, we'll just accept it. It's just the way the culture is. We'll have a lot better time reaching people if we just accept their lifestyles, instead of really telling them what the Bible says. Because, you know, that's just going to turn them off and drive them away. So what, what are we really saying? That we're going to let them believe that their lifestyles, their sinful lifestyles are acceptable to God and, and it's okay? No. This is what Paul is railing against in his letter here. He's saying, you guys cannot do that. Do you understand If you let that happen, do you understand what it's going to do to Christianity in Corinth? You're going to to impact the, the ability of the gospel, the witness of the gospel is going to be impacted in this whole city if you guys don't get this under control. If you don't deal with it in a godly way. So let's talk about the improper response to sin that we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first one we just touched on, this term puffed up. This means an inflated ego. It speaks of a self-righteous arrogance rather than a broken-hearted sorrow. Sin should never create in us an inflated ego or a self-righteousness. It should create a brokenness. With that brokenness, there is the opportunity for the enemy to come and bring condemnation to you. But God... Breaking your heart because of sin is not so that you can be condemned. It is so that you would be convicted. It's not so that you would be led to death. It's so that you could be led to life. It's not so that you could be led into the depths of deeper despair. It's so that you could be led out of that despair into life and freedom in Jesus. So when we become puffed up, arrogant, self-righteous... Those homosexuals, they're disgusting. Oh, my gosh. Do you realize how arrogant and self-righteous that attitude is? The perversion and the disgust of sin should cause us to mourn. It should break our heart. Verse 6, here's another improper response to sin. Paul says, your glorying is not good. This word glorying is the same word used in Romans chapter 5. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 5. Paul uses this very same word in the very same context, but for a very different reason. Romans 5.3. Paul says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Knowing that the tribulation knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. And we also glory, we also boast in tribulation. Who are we boasting of? We're boasting of God because through tribulation god is producing something in us he's producing perseverance and character is producing and perseverance is producing character and character is producing hope through tribulation god is producing in us a hope that will not disappoint paul said your boasting is not good your boasting in the face of this sin is not good. Sin gives us no reason to boast or to glory. Sin gives us a reason to mourn in humility and in the fear of the Lord. What is the proper response to sin? The proper response to sin... We see back up in verse 2 when Paul says, You are puffed up and have not rather mourned. That word mourn is the word that means to grieve. Just like if a loved one passed away, there is a grieving, a sorrow. This word even carries the connotation of wailing, wailing and sorrow, crying in sorrow, brokenness because of sin. Where is the brokenness in the church today because of sin? Where is the brokenness because of sin? Now, I'm not talking about the sin in the world. You understand that Paul is not, listen, this is so important, church. You need to get this. Paul is not writing this letter telling the church in Corinth that it needs to be broken because of the sin of the world. The fact that the world is in sin, that's just understood. This is where on Wednesday night as we're teaching through the book of John, in the very beginning of John's gospel, we see this. John writes and said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned when the Son came. God sent His Son to the world to save the world. The world is already condemned. Why? Because the world is already in sin. Homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, thieves, liars, cheaters, whatever sin you want to put there. People in the world who don't know Christ, who are of the world, not just in the world, but they're still lost in their death and their sin. That's the nature they have. Why are we surprised at any depth of perversion or sin that they would sink into? Why would we be surprised at that? It's not our place to judge the world. Paul says God's going to judge the world. So Paul's not writing this letter so that we can become indignant about the gay gay pride parade in San Francisco that all the unsaved homosexuals are marching in. It may be perverted and disgusting. I'll grant you that. But why are we so concerned about that when there is sin rampant in our church, listen to me, in the body of Christ, among those who profess to be believers? This is what this letter is addressing. This is what Paul is addressing here. Sin within the church, not in the world. So where is the mourning, where is the brokenness because of the sin that exists among God's people? Say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, they may profess to be God's people, but I don't think they're really saved. That's... that's Beside the point. It's not my place to judge someone's heart. I can't see inside their heart, inside their mind. If someone tells me that they are trusting Jesus and they're saved, I'm going to take them at their word. So if we profess to be believers, you tell me I, I'm saved, Pastor Jeff, I'm saved. I'm going to take you at your word. But if you're living an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle. As uncomfortable as it may be, what am I to do about that? Well, the Bible says if you see your brother trapped in sin, go to him with fear and meekness and gentleness, lest you be also tempted in the same way. See, we don't go with an inflated ego of self-righteousness. We don't go puffed up. We don't go boasting of our righteousness. Well, I don't have a problem with that sin. What's your problem, dude? No. We go with gentleness, with meekness, with an attitude of understanding that, you know what, but by the grace of God, I might be struggling with the very same thing you're struggling with. I could be hooked on on that same drug. I could be dealing with the same sin. I could be battling in my body with the same addiction, whether it's sex or whether it's drugs. It doesn't matter. Whether it's greed and power and money that I just... I'm willing to forsake my family for the sake of and deceive myself into thinking that, you know what, I'm doing this for my family. No, you're not doing it for your family. You're doing it for your own ego and your own power trip. Do you know people like that? Now, we are not God's Holy Spirit to go around and bring correction to people willy-nilly. But parents, if your child, whom you love, obviously needs a redirection. Do you love them enough to redirect them? It's what the Bible calls discipline. Do we love our children enough to discipline them? I mean, here the culture says, well, you know, you shouldn't. I mean, I mean, my gosh, we can't even tell kids in school anymore that two plus two doesn't equal five because we're going to damage their psyche. We can't say the words, that's wrong. Oh, don't tell them it's wrong because that's going to damage their self-esteem if they think they're wrong. I mean, can you see how far we have fallen? Now, we can point fingers at the world all day and say, well, that's what's wrong with the school. Yet we've got a church in America that will not call sin, sin. Ministers get on national television... And when asked point blank, is homosexuality a sin? Well, we don't talk about that in our church. Really? Really? Well, let's just cut those pages out of our Bible. I, I mean, it's like saying I'm not going to discipline my kid because I, I don't want to discourage him. I'll just let him grow up however he grows up and... We'll just see what happens. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen. It ain't going to be good. Do we think... Now, listen, church. This is a hard message. We're in a hard chapter of the Bible. A lot of people don't like to preach this chapter of the Bible. It's just hard. But do you believe that what Jesus said is true? Do you believe the words of Jesus, do you believe Jesus spoke the truth, yes or no? I believe he spoke the truth. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, what did he mean by that? And when he said, if the salt loses its flavor, its saltiness, what good is it? The answer, it's no good. If you have a light, but you hide it under a bushel basket, and you don't let the light shine, then what good is having a light if you're not going to let it light something? The answer is, there's no point. If we have the light, if this word, God's word, gives light, why do we want to cover it up? Why do we want to hide it? Why do we want to keep it from people? Because we're afraid the light might hurt their eyes. No, the, the light may... Heal their eyes. The light may show them where they are to go and how they are to walk so that they don't stumble and fall to their death. See, the problem is when we begin to fear man more than we fear God, man, we have entered a bad place. Look around, Christian at the country we live in and tell me where we're headed if we remain on the path that we're on right now. Where are we headed? And how are we going to change that? Well, we need a massive move of God. Okay, great. But that's not how we got to where we are today. See, this is is the problem with much of the church today, or too much of the church, I'll just say that. We think everything, the solution to everything is we just need God to do some massive thing. So we, we, we pray and we beg God to do this massive thing. The whole time we're praying and asking God to do this massive thing, we got all these little things that are out of order, and we just we just don't even worry about those. We just pretend like those don't exist, and we don't want to deal with the little things that are out of order. We just want God to do some big thing. And you know why some big thing ain't happening? It's because God says the, the big thing the, the, it's not the answer. That's not the solution. The problem is not that there wasn't a big thing that happened. The problem is you let all the little things go undone. The, all the little things you denied, all the little things you said that didn't really matter. Well, you know, Lord, I'm not a murderer. Well, good. But what are you? Well, you know, I cheat on my income tax, but everybody does. Right? I mean, the government's got too much money anyways. Do a survey of school children. If you steal something that's valued at less than $5, guess what? It's not stealing. It's only stealing if it's over $5. So now theft is not theft if it's under a certain limit kind of like murder's not murder if the baby's still inside the womb oh that's not murder that's abortion oh that's not theft that's just you know walmart's got plenty i you know they got more money than i do i need that that's not that's not stealing kind of like abortion's not murder right so when you have the church Those who profess to be the body of Christ sending mixed messages kind of creates a problem, doesn't it? So, how are we going to gain clarity in our message? I'll tell you how we're going to gain, gain clarity. We're going to gain clarity one heart at a time. Clarity is not going to come from a White House, clarity is not going to come from a State House. Clarity is not going to be found in Washington or Austin. It's not going to be found in Hollywood. It's not going to be found in the movies. Clarity is found right here. And clarity has to begin right here in my heart and right here in my mind. Because the problem that we find ourselves in didn't begin in Washington or Austin. It began in the hearts and the minds of people who begin to just kind of sweep these small things under the rug. Now we've got this huge mountain of dirt and scum that's built up and we can't seem to get around it. And now we're trying to figure out what to do with it. It's like, well, how do we move this mountain of this stuff out without tearing up everything? I'll tell you how. You're going to do it just like you built it. You're going to begin to take it out one spoonful, or one shovelful at a time. How do you eat an elephant? I know you've all heard this, right? One bite at a time. You try to eat the elephant in one fell swoop, one big bite, impossible. How do we deal with the issues that have invaded the church? We deal with them the same way they came. They came one by one, bit by bit. Where do we begin? We begin in the pulpit. We begin with the preaching of the gospel. We don't begin by trying to make people feel better. We begin by telling people the truth and trusting that ultimately the truth may hurt right now, but the truth ultimately is not going to just make me feel better. It's going to set me free. Go ahead. It's going to set us free. Man, I haven't even got my past my introduction yet. It's going to be time to eat in 10 minutes. What are we going to do? Oh. Okay. No, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a third of the way down the first page. So what's the proper response to sin? It's to mourn. So sin should never create an inflated ego, an attitude of self-righteousness. We have no reason to boast or to glory in our knowledge or in our gifting. But that's what we want to boast in. We want to think that our knowledge and our gifting and all the hoopla we create, if we just get stay focused on the hoopla, then maybe the sin will just go away. No, it ain't going to go away. It's growing and growing and growing because we're not dealing with it. Ah, but you know, Pastor Jeff, people don't want to hear that when they come to church. It's such a bummer. Really? Well, listen, when the country we call America, the nation we live in, the land of the free, the home of the brave, uh, when it becomes against the law to preach against sin from the pulpit, when they begin to come to your house and arrest you because you're having a church in your house, you know they did that in Arizona. Or they go to your house and they occupy your house. Did y'all read that article where the police occupied these people's house? They were trying to do a sting operation, and they just went in and they took over their house and arrested the people for obstructing uh, an investigation or something. It was their house. The people weren't even... You say, oh, that's... I don't know if I believe that, Pastor Jeff. How could that happen in America? Well... Think about how can a lot of things happen in America that are happening in America. Who would have thought 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that your government would be monitoring all your communications? Now, You might have a difference of opinion on whether that's good or bad, you know. But I'm just saying. Who's going to determine what a threat to our security is? Is homophobic speech hate speech? Well, according to our government, it is. And they haven't come in and and arrested me from the pulpit because I say homosexuality is a sin. But they did that in England just recently. Arrested the street preacher in England because he called homosexuality a sin and they arrested him for hate speech, homophobic speech. happened in Canada. It's happened here. There have been suits filed and people trying to get these things. And see, I know what some of you are thinking, those dadgum homosexuals, see what I'm talking about? No, it's not the dadgum homosexuals. The problem is the church has failed to stand up For the truth, because she's been more worried about attracting people to her, like a circus or a carnival, instead of preaching truth from the pulpit and dealing with the sin, not in the world, but the sin that's in the church. Because there should be a contrast between the church and the world. Things that are acceptable in the world should not be acceptable in the church, yet we want to just blend it all together because we we don't want to be unattractional. We don't want to drive people away. Listen, I'm telling you what. It's not your ability to attract people. It's not your ability to persuade people. It's not your ability to do any of that. It is the power of the gospel that's going to change a heart. And if we compromise the gospel, if we water down our message to try to make ourselves attractive to the world, then there is no power left in our message. Now, look around, church, and ask yourself How have we come to the place that we're at in this nation? How has the church come to the place it has come to? It wasn't one huge catastrophic event. It was little things. It was line upon line. We tore it down line upon line, precept upon precept. We just began to dismantle the truth and exchange it for a lie. How are we going to reconstruct it? How are we going to reform it? How are we going to change it? The same way you build a wall, we're going to take those bricks of truth and we're going to put them back in the wall and we're going to build it. One rock at a time. One life at a time. One congregation at a time. In one city at a time. All over. Do you know this year was the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Do I have any history people in here? Do I have anyone that loves history? I love, I love the Civil War. I've always been fascinated by the Civil War. Do you know, the Battle of Gettysburg is one of the most fascinating, it's just a very fascinating battle to study. And what's interesting about the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, we think of, these battles as just like one massive event. Well, it's true, it was one massive event, but the reality is what determined victory or defeat was not one massive thing, it was many small things all taking place simultaneously. It was a group of soldiers trapped against all odds that in the face of... And in the heat of the battle, and and against the odds that they are going to succeed, instead of turning and running, they stood and they fought. Even though they believed that it would probably cost them their lives, they didn't turn and run, they stood and they fought. And you had... Just scores of incidents like that all over the battlefield over the days of that battle called Gettysburg that ultimately determined who won that battle. Had Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia won the Battle of Gettysburg, it's very likely that we would live in a very different America today. It probably would have forced Abraham Lincoln to the negotiating table and and who knows what this nation would have ended up looking like. But instead, that battle was one of the key victories for the Union that caused this nation to remain one instead of be divided. My point is this. It wasn't one big thing that, that won the battle. It was a lot of small things. And we as the church need to stop looking for one big thing to change our lives. You need to begin to deal with the small things in your life that's, that are not right. And I don't say that to bring condemnation to you. I'm saying let the conviction of the Holy Spirit begin to deal with the small things. Let's quit looking to the White House to solve our problems. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the White House will never solve our problems. It never has and it never will. I don't care whether you got an R or a D living in the house. It's irregardless. It doesn't matter. The solution is going to be right here in your heart and right here in your mind. It's going to be you allowing God to deal with the things that aren't right. The little things, not just the big things. It's the little things that create big things. It's like marriages. No marriage ends in divorce because of one big thing that happened. Marriages end in divorce because of a series of small things that for the most part, will go undealt with, unnoticed, push it under the rug, set it aside. That's, That's true for just about anything you want to think of in life. It's true for how we deal with these issues in the church. So sin should cause us to grieve, to mourn, never to boast, never to glory, never to be self-righteous or arrogant. As the people of God, we we should desire truth. I want to read something to you. It's a quote. I think I've I think I wrote it down here. Oh, I did. It's a quote I read. Uh, Preachers, remember, exhortations and applications should be like nails that hold a board up, not a blanket that suffocates and exhausts. The point of my dealing with these issues is not to suffocate you, to exhaust you. But if the structure is in disrepair. Somebody needs to get a hammer and a nail and they need to hold the board back up there and they need to drive the board in so that the structure can be restored. The church is in disrepair and we're afraid to make the necessary changes because we don't want to suffocate people. We don't want to exhaust people. So we just let it to continue falling down. It's kind of like your house is falling down around you and you're out in the yard playing games, hoping that by playing games out in the yard, your house somehow is going to get fixed. It doesn't work that way. My my roof is leaking. I've got water pouring into my house. Well, what are you doing? Well, we're we're playing games and barbecuing out here today and and, uh, I'm hoping my roof's going to get fixed when it's all said and done. Well, is there anybody up on the roof driving nails and boards and shingles fixing what's broken. No, that's too hard. It's too hard. Nobody wants to do that. So we're doing this. That's an absurd example, but that's exactly what the church is doing. That's the kind of messages we're preaching. Those are the kind of books that men are writing because that's what our culture wants. And we're just in total and complete denial that the structure somehow is not being fixed. So here's what Solomon wrote. The words of the wise are as goads. You know what a, go, you know a goad is? An ox goad? You know what an ox goad is? Who's ever been a... See, that we don't understand what that is. So these guys that used to farm with oxen you guys that went to uh, the farm when we went for Titus' two men, you'll know what an ox goat is. That guy had an ox goat. He had a big, long stick that was pointy on the end, and he had these two oxen yoked up, and he was plowing his field, and he would poke them with that ox goat. You know why that ox goat To make that ox go? Because it was sharp. It, it, it inflicted some pain, and it reminded that ox what it was supposed to be doing. Oh, I'm supposed to be pulling a plow right now. Solomon says, the words of the wise are as goads. They poke us and they hurt us, but not to destroy us, but to get us moving in the right direction, doing what should be doing, because what we're doing is productive. It's building something. It's providing life. So the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd, the shepherd's, Of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shouldn't be figuring out how they can tickle people's ears. They should be figuring out where that nail needs to be driven into that board. So that the structure can be restored. They need to be goading the ox. So that the work can be done. So that life can be sustained. Are you hearing me church? Are you following me? If you don't catch that vision. If you don't embrace that message, if you don't begin to pray to that and if you don't begin to yearn and desire that the messages that you hear are messages of truth that are driving boards and goading ox and providing a rebuilding and restructuring and a reformation of that which is being torn down. That's what your prayer should be. That's what your desire should be. Not how you can run away from those things, but how you can run to those things and embrace those things, trusting that even though the nailing of the board may be painful for a moment, the end of it is going to be wonderful because you're not going to have to live in a house where the water pours in and the wind comes in and you're protected from the heat and the cold and it's what it's supposed to be. It's life-affirming and life-giving. Church should be life-affirming and life-giving. It should not be pretending that what God calls evil is good. It should not be ignoring this sin because it's somewhat socially acceptable and tolerated while being repulsed at this sin. We should not be addressing the sin of the world. We should be addressing the sin within the church. Amen. Okay, i got to stop there. Didn't even get through chapter 5 yet, so you're going to have to come back next week. and We're going to keep going. Amen? Amen. We're going to keep going, and we're going to talk about some really important things. So I want to encourage you to come. And as we talk about these things, this is informing you how to pray. This is informing you how to go out and do the work of ministry in your community. Amen. Let's all stand. Well, Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. Lord, we're dealing with some hard issues, but Lord, these are issues that you address in your word. They were hard issues when Paul penned these words some 2,000 years ago and sent this letter to the church in Corinth in Greece. They were hard then, they were uncomfortable, they were painful. They weren't pleasant, but they were necessary. Lord, we live in a culture today that chooses to deny the necessary and the painful, to pretend like it doesn't exist or we don't need it for the sake of the convenient and the pleasant. All the while, God... There is destruction taking place around us. So, Lord, today I pray that you would, by your precious Holy Spirit, begin to prick our hearts. Let your word, Lord, let them be as a goad to our hearts and to our minds. Let them be, Lord, as nails driven in boards. Not to destroy, but to build up. Lord, if there's anyone here today and they would be honest and say, I don't know this God that you speak of. I don't know if I have truly been born again. I don't know if I have been saved. Jesus said, whosoever believes in him shall be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only born son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but inherit eternal life. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, you can call upon him today and you can be saved. When you call upon Him from a heart of faith, your salvation is that simple. Trust Him. That is not an end. That is only a beginning. And the journey of our salvation can become quite difficult. So, Father, I pray that You would, as the Good Shepherd... Lead us and guide us in your name for your name's sake and the path of righteousness that you have prepared for us. Lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. Lead us, God, to the higher ground, even to the table that you prepared before us in the presence of our enemies. Help us to be a people, God, that would not reject the truth, that would not deny the truth, but would embrace the truth, even if it means... The nail is driven in to secure the board in its place. That we trust you, God, that you know. Help us, God, to be a people that loves truth more than anything else. Even to our own hurt. Lord, we ask that you do this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Father, as we get ready to go next door, I just pray that you... Bless the food we're going to eat. Thank you for all the hands that prepared it. Let it be nourishment to our bodies. Let our fellowship, God, be Christ-affirming and glorifying to you. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for each one here, God. Lord, as Joe and Ashley get ready to go back home today, just pray, Father God, a safe trip, a safe journey for them. Pray, God, that you lead them and guide them in your way. Lord, for Sierra, she gets ready to go back home whenever she may be going, sooner or later. Just pray for her and her journey. Pray for Jonathan as he's in Afghanistan. And Lord, for so many that are not with us today because of sickness or whatever, we lift them up to you, God, and we just pray that you touch them and you encourage them, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go next-